Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the February Top 10 in today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? If you've been listening to my show for any length of time, uh, this is not an ep- type of episode I've ever done before. And, you know, it's not February-born actors, not, you know, this is a separate episode, a separate distinction. But uh, it was something that I just kind of had an idea of just uh, yesterday, kind of, and wanted to see how well it works, see if it works at all, and uh, if it's something I can do monthly, because I watch a lot of movies, and you, you, I'm sure you know that, I'm sure you're aware, I watch a ton, a ton of movies, a lot, all of the time. Uh, for example, in February alone, this year, 2018, I watched... 159 unique films, uh, which ranged in rating from 96 at the very top uh, to 3 at the bottom. So covered covered the spectrum, really. But uh, what I wanted to do, you know, I don't do a lot of review episodes. I, I mean, certainly not. It wouldn't even be possible to review 159 movies. In a, week, in a month on the podcast, and who has the time to listen to that many reviews when, you know, the half at least half of these movies I don't even like. So uh, I wanted to try to cover some, some other bases, on, on the other hand. So because I watched so many movies, I wanted to break down the top 10 movies I saw in February that weren't rewatches. So that eliminates movies like Get Out, Dunkirk, War for Planet of the Apes, uh, the Lego Batman movie, which all would have been in the top 10 uh, at some point, uh, except I'd seen them before, and I'd seen them prior to February. Now, if the first time I'd seen them was this February, that would be different, as one of the examples in this week will show. But but for the rest of them, they're all fresh. Uh, I only saw them once. And it also lets me address short films. Um, There will be uh, one short film in this month's top 10. Uh, It gives me, you know, there's going to be films on here that I have mentioned on the podcast already. There's going to be stuff you've probably never heard of. And it just, it's a wide breadth. You know, there are going to be some months where there's like some awesome, awesome, like all amazing stuff. There's going to be months more like this uh where i think it's a little bit in the middle there's some real great stuff at the top of the list and then um it gets a little bit uh more subjective towards the bottom of the top 10 uh, and then there could be even a month uh you know where none of these top 10 movies none of my top 10 movies like break an 80 out of 100 for me like that's totally feasible um you know just looking at march right now nothing so far in march has broken an 80 for me yet uh which I mean, obviously, we're only a little over a week into March, so plenty, plenty of time for that to happen. But just saying, uh, there's variation here. But it gives me a chance to talk about a lot of movies, and we'll see. We'll just, we're just going to see how it goes and, and, and move on from there. So uh, let's jump in to my top 10 newly discovered movies in February. Countdown 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. Starting with number 10, we have Oh Lucy! Exclamation point. Uh, I watched this one on February 3rd, so very early in the month. Uh, this was a Spirit Awards nominee, uh, so I got a screener and watched it that way. And my, my brief summary is, a lonely woman becomes entwined with her English teacher. Uh, that's fairly accurate. And it's... It's an interesting little sort of comedy, mostly a little bit of romance. You have recognizable English-speaking people like Josh Hartnett, who plays a pretty significant role as said English teacher. Uh, You even have a brief cameo from Megan Mullally. And this one I really enjoyed. Uh, I ended up giving it 
a 77, uh, which is pretty good for me. It it was it was just I don't know it it's not anything deep. It, it doesn't have a lot of uh, I don't think it's like trying to sell you a message or or anything to that extent. But what it does have is just these this brilliantly realized character of Lucy or her real name uh, Satsuko, played by Shinobu Terajima, Terajima, who I think is fantastic in this. Uh, this is the only thing I've seen her in, and I thought she did a really great job of kind of being able to play like all the different sides to this character as. You know, she works in an office, she smokes a lot, and then all of a sudden, Josh Hartnett sort of, like, enters her life after, uh, you know, I think it's her sister or, or friend encourages her to take English lessons, and then the whole situation just spirals out of control, and then she ends up, like, leaving uh, Japan and just flying out of the country and and you know these are there are a lot of like consecutive things that happen in this movie that makes sense when you're watching the movie they're very natural they're like dominoes falling one after another but they don't but it's just it's fun to watch them play out it's fun to see how they turn into each other and i think that the movie does a really good job of showcasing just how easy it is to get to to sort of just have things overwhelm you and before you know it you find yourself you know stuck in a car with a guy who you really don't really know uh, in a country you've never been in uh, in circumstances that you're not familiar with etc 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 so I really liked Olusi um, I think uh, I don't think if I remember it was the only nomination it had in I think it had two nominations in the Spirit Awards. And I don't think I voted for it for either. I think, I mean, it was up against some stiff competition. I think because Shinobu Terajima, I believe, was nominated for Best Actress. And I think it was nominated for either Writing or Cinematography. I think it was Writing. But, I, I prefer the, but you know, when you're going up against Coconata for Columbus and um, you know, Lady Bird, Get Out, etc., those kind of movies... Tough to tough to break ahead of those, in honestly, but oh Lucy, seventy seven out of a hundred, pretty good, solid solid month, all things considered, and uh, definitely a recommendation. It's not very long; it's like an hour and a half, and I really enjoyed it. My number nine from February, I watched it February eighth, is Speak. Uh, my summary: a girl that was raped struggles to speak about what happened to her. Uh, pretty simple summary. Uh, the movie is a lot more involved than my sentence of summary would lead you, lead you to believe. If you listened to my top 10 last 10 episode on The Cinderellist, I did already talk about this movie there. But, I mean, if it's your top 10, it's in your top 10. Uh, and I, didn't have, I haven't talked about it here. It stars Kristen Stewart. Um, and... Um, Oh, what's his name? I'm gonna have to look it up. I can't think of his name. Um, 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 um. Steve Zahn. I had the Z in my head. I couldn't. Steve Zahn, Kristen Stewart. Uh, you might also recognize Michael Angarano or Elizabeth Perkins. Some smaller characters. And you know, this is a 2004 movie. It came out. 14 years ago now, well before Twilight, before Kristen Stewart had that entire stigma surrounding her. And if you like the films that have come out with Kristen Stewart in them, post-Twilight, post-Snow White and the Huntsman, watch this. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by the... Just like, this is the movie that should have transitioned her into, you know, the clouds of Sils Maria and... Uh, the personal shoppers of the world that she ends up being in, which I think are fantastic. And it's a shame she has this huge deviation from that path uh, at, at when she enters into the Twilight universe. But there was definitely... Watching this, you can see that she's had that... Ha it's not that... Like, Clouds of Sils Maria and, and 
personal shopper aren't just flukes. You know, this isn't like she just discovered that she could act like two years ago. You know, she's had this in her for at least 14 years or more whenever this was filmed. So I've always been a big fan of Kristen Stewart in spite of Twilight. And this just further reinforced that for me. And it beyond that, it's actually a very... It's got a very sort of lifetimey plot, and I think, I mean, obviously that kind of holds it back. That's why it's only rated my ninth film. That's why it gets a 78, not, you know, doesn't break into 80 or anything like that. But the way it's told and it's directed well, it's directed by Jessica Scharzer, directed by a woman, and it ends up, you know, you it's it's told in a very interesting way. It all revolves around this party that has happened in the past when we pick up with the movie. And throughout the film, we get more and more pieces of the movie to uh, look back on. And we slowly piece together the puzzle as the film progresses. Uh, And then as it progresses, we realize in hindsight exactly why Kristen Stewart's character, Melinda, has been acting the way she's been acting. You know, she she's known everything we're learning from the beginning and it's taken us you know two-thirds of the movie to figure out exactly what was going on um and then i mentioned steve zahn i think he has a great sort of supporting role here uh, as an art teacher there's a fantastic scene where he, he basically he holds out a globe it has like a bunch of paper in it with words written on them and you're supposed to pick out a piece of paper you're not looking at it and the thing on that paper is what you're going to work on in art uh, for that semester or year, I think. And Kristen Stewart picks out a piece of paper that says tree on it. And she kind of scoffs and says, I know how to draw a tree. I learned it in like second grade. And he's like, okay, show us. And so she goes up and she draws a tree. And it's like a very simple, basic, everyone's drawn a tree this way probably in their entire life. Two lines that curve at the bottom. And then, like, a cloud head. You probably know what I'm talking about. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where you, you're you like, oh, I can draw a tree. And then you draw it, and you're like, okay, I see I see what's happening. And you can see when she's doing it and in front of the whole class, she's like, okay, I guess I could draw a better tree if I worked at it. And so, I don't know. It just that, that scene was really fun. It was really good. It helped really dive in deeper into the dynamic of, of Melinda's character and, and ultimately the relationship she forms with Steve Zahn's character throughout the film. Really fun. I was going to say fun. It's not fun. It's about rape. It's not fun at all. But good movie and uh, another short one. It's only 87 minutes. And uh, if you like new Kristen Stewart, this is old Kristen Stewart as you wish she had been if you don't like Twilight. I guess is the pitch. I don't know. Speak from 2004. I really like it. Cool. Uh, number eight is the only short film on the list this month. It is a foreign language film. It is a documentary. I watched it February 2nd and it, uh, is the earliest film I'd seen of the month. So it carried through the whole month and it's called Our Curse. It's from 2013. And my summary is, two parents confront an incurable disease in their child. It is directed uh, by one by the father, and it is uh, Polish, uh, it takes place in Poland, and the, it's about these parents, uh, the director and his wife, who have a child who has uh, Dean's curse, also known as CCHS, congenital central hypoventilation syndrome. It is incurable, and people, according to the letterboxed summary, people affected with this disease stop breathing during their sleep and require a lifetime mechanical ventilation on a ventilator. And the film, it's only about 23, 24 minutes long, but it shows the parents dealing with this new reality that they live in and the difficulties they're in and the kind of furthest the greatest extent uh furthest down the the scale level of parenting that you kind of 
hope you don't have to get go through, but know that it, there's a small chance that this could happen to you and your kid too. And it's it's really harrowing and eye-opening to watch them as they simultaneously we see scenes of them taking care of their kid and making sure that the kid's okay and watching them closely but then you also cut to them like kind of just sitting on the couch and like exhausted and they can't even like comprehend going on another day and living like this because it is completely shaken the foundation of their lives it is so monumentally affecting and life-altering that you can't help but want it to not exist it's it's a frustrating circumstance and not one that is easily handled uh and i think that just the presentation of it it feels very authentic it feels very um expository and revealing and raw in a good way but it is a tough watch um not only as someone who you know thinks of having kids or has had kids or knows kids or whatever it, it it's all it's just a, a fascinating portrait of human beings and you know they always say you always hear some sort of very some sort of some sort of saying about the fact that you know we are here to procreate you know we are here to you know we are we have bodies that are built to have kids and and you know populate this earth and this is a stark stark example of the contrast to that idea in which you have two parents who really would want almost nothing more than to have not have had this kid and that's that's a scary scary reality so that's our curse um i gave that a 79 so just another point up slow and steady my number seven is an older film. Uh, this one comes from 1960. Uh, I watched it on February 4th, 2018. And my brief summary is a traveling salesman decides to become a preacher. Now, uh, I don't talk about it too much, um, but I have everyone occasionally. You know, I'm not a very religious person. I don't know why I phrased it that way. I'm not a religious person whatsoever. Uh, and more often than not, a film that involves religion in a very substantial way doesn't work for me. Uh, but that being said, it, it really depends on how they how religion is, is used in the film. There are plenty of mo good movies that revolve around religion and involve religion to a large degree. And there are plenty of movies that kind of don't. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I think there... I don't know. There's a lot of movies that I've seen where religion is at the forefront. And it ultimately is the movie's downfall. It's why the movie ends up being impossible to connect with. And why uh, people don't it doesn't last it's not something you know we all these movies like god's not dead and the shack um and uh things like that you know, those are just you know they're put out by christian uh, uh production companies and they're intending like their intended audience is religious people um christian catholic whatever but their intended audience are religious people and they're marketing their films to religious people. And that's fine. And I, I, they're not for me. They're not intended to be for me. But as a film, I, I think they're poorly made, poorly executed. On the other hand, films like this film, uh, the name is Elmer Gantry, is the name of this movie. It is a very fascinating look at even evangelic even evangelical christians um it takes place in the 1920s in the midwest stars burt lancaster gene simmons arthur kennedy uh, shirley jones strong cast fantastic cast and great performances all around and the the premise you know elmer gantry is the titular burt lancaster's character and he just gloms on 
to this traveling evangelical Christian group led by Gene Simmons. And she is kind of the most picturesque version of an evangelical Christian. She is nice. She is pristine. She encourages others to be their best selves. And she's not, sell, she's not giving you a hard sell on evangelical Christianism, Catholicism. Ugh. She's not giving you a hard sell on evangelicalism. <sighs> she is not, whatever, she's not giving you a hard sell. You know, she's not going to beat you over the head with how much better her life is than anyone else's. She's just tr looking out for the best in each person. Enter Burt Lancaster as Elmer Gantry, who is giving you the hard sell. He is pounding the pulpit. He is waving the Bible in your face. He is condemning you if you do not adhere to his vision. He argues with Gene Simmons' character. He argues with uh, Arthur Kennedy's character, who is uh, one of the managers of, of this uh, group of people. He argues with cops and, and legal representatives and government officials and average Joes. He will argue with everyone because he is so well-spoken and he has such a way with words that he can, he can just overpower you that way. And I think, easily, I think my favorite of Burt Lancaster's performances, I've seen quite a few of them now, and at first, I was, a, I was a bit apprehensive about his abilities, but I think he does a fantastic job here. And what I love about this movie is, as much as big of a role as religion plays, that's not really what the movie's about. And the movie uses religion as a way to shine a light and put Elmer Gantry, Burt Lancaster, under a microscope under a magnifying glass and really try to get at the heart of who this guy is, why he does what he does, what made him transition from being a football player to a salesman to uh, an even an evangelist, um, priest, etc. Uh, and and it's far more of a character study than it is anything else. And I think that the what makes it so well done and so well made is that it, it, it approaches the film. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't put religion up on a pedestal. It doesn't, it doesn't sort of kowtow to, uh, sort of making the religious aspect of it worth more than anything else. You know, if this was, if, if it was about him using car, selling cars, to get at the heart of who this character was. You know, that's how it feels. It's just that in this particular case, it's, you know, being an, evan an evangelist. And that's perfectly fine. And that's a great method to, to approach this character. And I don't know that there's a better way you could have approached this particular character, this particular um, written, particularly written character. And so uh, that is kind of like, full circle here like that is what makes me that's what draws me to a movie that uses religion in such a large way it's not that the religion is you know it's not like the movie's preaching at you it's that the movie is telling a story and religion is just one of those components uh much you know it's like the way that you look at avatar and it's like oh well it's just Pocahontas and, and Fern Gully, except it's set on this planet in this universe, and it's with blue people instead of Native Americans, etc., etc., etc. Like, okay, this is a character study uh, about a power-hungry, well-spoken man, sort of, sort of uh, blood and uh, or, or what's the term? Um, blood and vinegar. That that doesn't sound right. Uh, something in vinegar vinegar something and vinegar this is not helping me i don't know why i googled vinegar something and um blood is it blood and vinegar can't be maybe it is give him i don't know he's he's a very brash guy and i think using this this direction you know using pushing him into being an event an evangelist has led to his 
worst tendencies, uh, but at the same time, best attributes uh, shining through. And and I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was pretty great. And uh, I also gave it a 79 as well. Um, really good, really good. And fantastic performances by Lancaster and Simmons, uh, who are, are great, just great in this. My number one, two, three, four, five, six is a film I saw February 5th. So a lot of these in the first half of the month. Um, well, <laughs> everything up until the top three is in the first half of the month. So number six is Bad Day at Black Rock. And my summary is a one-armed man comes to a town that doesn't receive visitors. So uh, let me try to unpack that a little bit. You have, no, not Black Rock, Bad Day. Uh, so directed by John Sturges, starring Spencer Tracy. And I believe he was nominated, Oscar nominated for this, three Oscar nominations for the film, including Spencer Tracy and Best Director and Best Writing. Uh, so Spencer Tracy plays uh, John J. McCready, who is the one-armed man. He just kind of stops off at Black Rock, this really by-the-wayside town. And it ends up... Uh, they're, not, they're not super welcome to visitors uh, in that way. And he, he just... He's this calm, cool, collected guy. And he just kind of just strolls in... Um, he never, fe he, he, obviously he looks at a place from the, from the jump, but just the way he acts, you know, he never feels like he's intruding, you know, he, he has that soft-spoken demeanor, he, he understands the situation he's in, he knows who the people are he, that he's dealing with, and how he can talk to them and, and f work them into the situation he needs them to be in, and, the truth of the matter, at the end of the day, is, you know, he's come there with a purpose, and I think you hear, like, two or three times in the movie, you know, nobody, nobody stops at Black Rock. Like, the guy on the train is like, I don't, no one stops here. The train never stops at Black Rock. Uh, but he did, and he's there for a reason, and that reason becomes apparent as you watch the film. And, and further from that, it becomes... You know, it, it's apparent to everyone else in the movie. And and you don't, as you watch it, they know, everyone, every all the characters, they know more than you do. You're playing catch-up to them. And so you have all these conversations, these beautifully written conversations, where they're talking about one thing, and you, the viewer, don't exactly know what they're talking about. You just know that there's something more going on here. And it's tough. You can't exactly put your finger on it. But... It's there underneath the surface, and you know, just like a like a fingernail, you're scratching at it and scratching at it and picking at it, and slowly, eventually, it all boils over and bubbles to the surface. Uh, this also stars Walter Brennan, Ernest Borgnine, Lee Marvin. It has an incredible like supporting cast: Robert Ryan and Francis. And it's it really sneaks up on you because I know the first half of this movie, I was kind of meh on but it picks up in a big way in the back half and it's only 80 minutes long it's like super short so it, it doesn't take a lot of time to to get that ball rolling once it finally does so that's bad day at black rock my number six from 1955 another old one uh also rated a 79 a lot of 79s this month moving on to the top Five. Top five of the month is another film that I talked about on my top ten last ten with James on the Cinerealist podcast. Uh, and I saw this February 8th, and uh, it's from 1942, and my summary is a spoiled brat gets between his mother and the man she loves. And it's called The Magnificent Ambersons. So this was actually my number one movie uh, from from my top ten last ten with uh, with James, and it's a it's directed by um, 
oh, what's his name? You know, uh, uh, Citizen Kane. Magnificent Ambersons. Orson Welles. It's directed by Orson Welles. From 1942, it stars Joseph Cotton, uh, Ann Baxter, Agnes Moorhead. Uh, it's not like a star-studded cast or anything. And it went through production hell. Uh, you know, I was telling James about this. And Orson Welles, I think the movie was originally like two and a half hours long. But... Orson was like off shooting something else for somebody else uh, out of the country and the studio decided uh, RKO Radio Pictures decided you know know what this isn't going to fly we need to trim this down we need to cut out parts of it it's too long this that the other and uh, Orson Welles was like no don't do that like I made this movie it's mine and they did it anyway and they released it uh, in its 88 minute form which is what I saw I don't know if the full version exists but uh it, it, it for what it is it's it's kind of a mystery it's a marvel of the movie it it they cut this movie in such a fascinating way and it all the result ends up being something that's unlike any other thing you've ever seen to the extent where I would 100% believe that if someone said that like Orson Welles like did this intentionally and this is exactly the movie he wanted to make I don't know but it's kind of like there's no transitions the the film cuts hard between timelines and it skips ahead in time and you really have to catch your breath and figure out where you are because some characters will look the same the entire movie and have aged 15 years. Uh, other characters completely change actors because they've grown up, and there's no warning. You're not really given a lot of um, time to to catch your breath. And at the end of the day, I really found it fascinating. So the plot, as I mentioned, uh, you know, the main character is this spoiled young kid. Who grows up in the movie, and he is the the heir to the Amberson fortune, uh, and his mother, his widowed mother, has always loved this other man, and this other man loves her, but the kid keeps getting in the way because he doesn't want the fortune to go to anybody else. And what's interesting is it's this guy who. He's the worst. He is just the worst. And you hate him and you root against him the whole movie. The whole movie. And this this buildup of anxiety and desperation for him to get his comeuppance, for him to uh, be, be put in his place, for him to get what's coming, you're never paid off. You're never paid off for that. And that's really frustrating. But there aren't a lot of movies that are going to take that that risk and i found it incredibly rewarding as a unique film in that sense i think it is fascinating that nobody that that this is a movie that kind of ends abruptly it ends without a lot of hoopla and i think that it is one of my favorite Orson Welles films and he you know supposedly you know didn't have a hand in the editing process that led to what it ultimately became and that's that's I mean that's that's very hard to believe <laughs> uh, for some like for Orson Welles in 1942 uh, you know kind of at the height of his powers and for him to be able to not have any control over the ultimate result of this movie is uh, staggering and I think the story behind the movie is just as fascinating as the movie itself it's it's not a sim it's not just a very straight straightforward plot it's it's convoluted and the editing style of the movie makes it all the more so but I really had a good time with it it is a hundred percent not for everybody I do not think it is for everybody it's not Citizen Kane, I don't think you watch it, and even if you don't like it, you'll respect it. I don't think that's the case. I think if you don't like it, you're going to dislike it, for sure. 
And uh, so I wouldn't, definitely wouldn't say start with this if you want to learn who Warson Wells was and what his films were. Definitely start somewhere else. But I liked The Magnificent Ambersons. And I gave it an 80. So we've crossed the threshold into films rated 80. Moving on to my number four. Uh, this is a film, the oldest film that I watched in my top 10 this month, and it's from 1928. I saw it February 3rd, and my summary is a former Russian general turns up in Hollywood as an extra. <laughs> um, it's called The Last Command, and it stars Emil Jannings, who, Jannings? 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 who won the first ever Best Actor Award at the Oscars. And he is, in the movie, a former Imperial Russian general. And he just escapes, he gets out of there, and he just kind of finds himself in Hollywood. He's picked up to be an extra in a uh, war movie about Russia, involving Russia. And they're like, hey, you're Russian. We're going to put you in this movie. You just got to stay in the background and do some stuff. And slowly, the role gets a little bit bigger. You know, he just kind of has the look. You know, he's cast as this Russian general who just has to kind of give one speech. And the director of the movie recognizes him because the director fought against Russia in the, you know, he was a revolutionary. And it's, it's fascinating. It is a silent film. It's a little less than an hour and a half long. And the film slowly begins to interweave itself with the present and the past. As Emil Janning's character remembers his past as an actual Russian general. And he gets lost in it as he goes through all of these scenes where he's playing an actual Russian general, or playing a fake Russian general. And the ending is incredible. I, I was in love with the ending. I think it's fantastic. Janning's performance is beautiful. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, having not seen a ton of movies from 1928, I don't really have much of a leg to stand on saying this. But in my opinion, it's the best male actor performance I saw, I've seen from 1928 so far. And it's it's just... It's it's really fascinating, and it's such an interesting film because you know we've seen movies to this extent before. You know, people who get so lost in a delusion and and a memory or or a history that they it translates into present day. You know, that's not super uncommon. But back in 1928, it probably was brand new. It was probably super fresh, and. This might have even been a movie that really started that. I don't know for sure. And ultimately, this is a movie that sticks with you. You know, it, it's more than just, yeah, he used to be a Russian general and now he's playing one. You know, he embodies what that life used to be for himself. And it goes further beyond that. You know, as William Powell, who plays the director here, uh, Lev Andreev, he is also someone who has a character arc and he is also coming to terms with the fact that this guy was the worst you know this this Emil Janning's character you know killed and is the reason for the deaths of probably a lot of people William Powell was friends with or knew and yet here he is just an extra a background character in a movie that Powell is directing and the juxtaposition of power the acknowledgement of past crimes and trend toward uh, improvement and growth. It's, it's just a fascinating look at these two men who are spending or who are moving in very different directions but uh, kind of wind up in the same place at the end. I really enjoyed it. Last Command gets an 80. Same as The Magnificent Ambersons. 80. All right, moving on to my number three is a documentary from, from 2009, so a fairly recent movie, and uh, I saw it February 26th, so towards almost at the end of the month, 
My summary is activists try to expose dolphin slaughter. It's super fun, right? It's called The Cove. It won Best Documentary in for 2009. And it is a tough movie. Um, it is... It is a mix between, like, Icarus and Blackfish, uh, and, uh, oh, um, uh, the movie with the guy who does the tightrope walk between the Twin, ta uh, the two twin Towers, uh, I can't think of the name of it, but it's, it's, we know what we're getting into from the beginning, you know, we're following uh, this guy who is, like, public enemy number one in uh, Japan and his plot, he has this plot to expose the goings-on of this cove uh, in, um, where does it take place? In, oh, it doesn't tell me in this. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Taiji? Uh, so, renowned dolphin trainer Rick O'Berry uh, and it takes place in Taiji, Japan. Rick O'Berry, for a history lesson, he is one of the ones who trained uh, Flipper, Flipper the Dolphin, in the TV show, and all the dolphins that played Flipper. And that was what started training dolphins. He is kind of credited with the reason that people want to watch dolphin shows and why people love dolphins to the extent that they do. And at the time, you know, that was great. You know, he lived right by the beach where the dolphins lived that he trained and he was great friends with them he even tells us at one point you know he used to take episodes of flipper down to the shore he would take the tv with a huge extension cord and go down the end of the dock end of the pier and play it for the dolphins and they would watch it and the dolphins you know there were two or three different dolphins that played flipper and they could like recognize each other when it was them or when it wasn't them on the tv and now that's fascinating. Like that in and of itself sounds like a great story, but that's not the story we're being told in this movie. Skip ahead to you know the mid to late aughts, and he doesn't do that anymore. He now kind of just floats around Japan, doing everything he can to prevent dolphin slaughter and dolphin abuse, and to try to. Uh, stop this this problem that he you know he considers to have helped create and with the help of some activists and a couple other people along the way they end up focusing on a particular cove in Taiji Japan where every it feels like every week every day hundreds of dolphins are corralled into this cove trainers from across the world um, are waiting to pick out their, the dolphins that they want to take back with them to train for whatever reason. Um, and then all the dolphins that aren't picked are ushered out of this particular this first cove into a smaller second cove and uh, slaughtered for meat. Sold for meat. And no one can see the second cove. It is surrounded by rocks. The Japanese fishermen and um, dolphin uh, and whalers and, and all those commissions, all those guys are constantly in the way. They will arrest you and hold you for months at a time, uh, if, even if they, if, just if they have any suspicion that you're doing anything at all. There are signs like they just it's absurd like how in your face these people are you know they just show up and a guy is just immediately in your face he's got a video camera pointed right in your face and all he's he's just saying like go away 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 and it's it's what transpires and what ultimately ends up happening in this movie is incredible it feels like a fictional narrative and it is 100% real. The footage is is amazing. The, the courage and bravery of these people is unparalleled. And the biggest knock against this movie is it does feel a little white savior-y. 
that's the pre- that's the biggest you know downfall of the film, uh, if you can even call it that, which is a shame. Um, but I mean, I don't know how else, and I don't think I don't think the movie tries to push itself in that direction. I just think it just happens naturally because it's all mostly it's pretty much all just white people who are saving the dolphin population from Japanese people is what it looks like and if you i don't think that that didn't take me out of it i didn't have an issue with that i think it's more of like an in hindsight oh well yeah it's just like as if like the only people who could have done this were white people or or americans or however you want to look at it yeah to to a degree but at the same time i think the story itself is so so fascinating and so compelling and there's so much more so many other levels to it that I didn't haven't really gotten into that man this is a fascinating fascinating film it's got like oceans 11 elements to it uh it's 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 a it's incredible it's it's adrenaline pumping it is a a fantastic fantastic documentary i gave it an 89 so we jump up from the last movie in 80, huge gap up to 89 for The Cove. Really good, really good. Which brings me to my number two. And uh, this is a movie I saw February 18th. Uh, it's from 1951. And my summary is a journalist exposes a story about a man trapped in a cave, wringing it for all it's worth. Uh, the man in question is Kirk Douglas, Ace in the Hole. Ace in the Hole, um, directed by Billy Wilder, who's one of my favorite directors. Uh, he's also directed Sunset Boulevard, The Apartment, um, Some Like It Hot, Double Indemnity, The Lost Weekend, Witness for the Prosecution, Stalag 17, etc. Uh, and Kirk Douglas, Jan Sterling... Robert Arthur, this is a movie, as much as uh, it is for Emil Jannings in The Last Command, uh, or Burt Lancaster in Elmer Gantry, this is an incredibly deep character study of Kirk Douglas in Ace in the Hole. He plays Chuck Tatum. He's a journalist who, you know, he used to be a big guy, big name, respected got a lot of big big stories and and now he's kind of just sort of relegated to none of that he he's like in a backwater town of albuquerque writing for a local newspaper basically and he's sent off on a mission uh, a pretty pretty much a puff piece and just so happens he and his sidekick run into they stop to get, I think, gas at this, like, back, out-of-the-way, like, house. It's not a town, even. It's just, like, a an inn place. And uh, they learn that nearby there's some guy trapped in a cave. Just one guy. And, you know, my first instinct upon hearing that would be, oh, crap, are they getting him out? What are they doing? Is there anything I can do to help? What what's going on um what do you need me to do can i like how can i with my profession as a writer a journalist what can i do to incite um support in order to get him out and as fast and as safely as possible not what kirk douglas's chuck tatum reacts as his reaction is this is the story i've been waiting for how can I make it last as long as possible and get as much as I can out of it until the in, until the well runs dry? Which is horrifying to some degree. It is dangerous, particularly for the guy trapped in the cave. And turns out to be pretty scary for everyone else too. And what follows is him, Chuck Tatum, trying to prolong the time this guy's trapped in a cave uh, using all the influence he can so that he can write this story so that he can become he ultimately becomes you know the only person with access to the guy in the cave the only person with real access to the story he owns the story it's his name attached to it 
everyone wants a piece of him, a piece of the story, a piece of the guy in the cave, and it all flows through him. And this is the kind of this is the kind of situation that you know a character like Chuck Tatum dreams for and then ultimately is a is a situation that beats him into submission and kind of breaks him as a person and i think that is a brilliant device in telling a story i think if the situation your characters are in isn't something that could potentially you know destroy them uh your stakes might not be high enough in that situation you know it doesn't have to be life or death it certainly isn't life or death for kirk douglas in this movie uh but someone's life is on the line and uh, you know it, it's it's chuck tatum's hubris and and desire and need to be important need to have control to have power that drives this situation off a bridge basically and i loved it um it was you know five to ten minutes in i still wasn't quite feeling it but as soon as you get to that cave all hell breaks loose it is absolutely a fascinating fascinating watch and definitely encourage anybody to check this out it is really good it's on itunes it's on amazon look it up billy wilder is incredible just as a director hands down and this is one of my favorites of his um and in fact is my number two so the only movie i like better than this is sunset boulevard from wilder and yeah i this is one of the this is one of the lesser prestige films that he's done you know he didn't get nominated for director here um he didn't uh he was only he was nominated for writing, but not directing for Ace in the Hole. So yeah, for me, man, fa- fantastic movie, truly, truly great. I give it a 94, uh, which puts it in my top 300 of all time. I'm not 100% sure where that would be just yet, uh, but it would land somewhere. Um, let's see, only has an 89 on Rotten Tomatoes, so it probably lands somewhere in like the. 175 range out of my top in my top 300 which is not too shabby in the raising arizona cabin in the woods shaolin soccer realm of things so yeah i big fan of ace in the hole big fan which brings me to my number one uh which is actually a movie i've even had a review episode for already on my show so i don't have to go into too much detail but it i can't ignore the fact that it's here and I'm not gonna, you know, skip it and and you know make Ace in the Hole number one and move everything up just to talk about something else, because that's not accurate. And I believe in accuracy. So, the best movie that I saw for the first time in February of 2018, I saw. Uh, actually, I'm not sure what. Let's see. I guess it would have been 22nd. Um, what day was the 22nd? That was a Thursday. Yes, so I saw it on first, second, third, fourth, Friday, Thursday. I saw it on the 15th. I saw it February 15th for the first time, February 22nd for the second time, 2018. It is a 2018 film. And my summary is, after his father's death, a prince seeks his rightful place on the throne. Say it with me, Black Panther. (laughs) Black Panther, number one movie that I haven't seen before. I give it a 94 which is the same as Ace in the Hole. Uh, it does edge out um, uh, as far as uh, Rotten Tomato score, which is the tiebreaker. So Black Panther is currently my 156th best movie all time. Uh, so, you know, 10, 15, 20 spots ahead of where Ace in the Hole would be. This movie is amazing. Um, you know, I see a lot of people... I think a lot, I think most people like it to some degree, and I've seen a lot of people lately talking about how you you know yeah it it goes for stuff, but it ultimately comes short of like truly breaking the mold. And I guess I kind of agree with that. Obviously, I don't think it's you know it, it's it's definitely sets a new standard for Marvel in terms of its casting and in terms of you know just the representation it it 
uh, permeates and the the level of success that it has had and um, just kind of how game-changing it is uh, in in presence but I do think that a lot of people are selling it short on content as well I think uh, you know Killmonger is uh, easily my favorite villain in any Marvel movie hands down it's not close Um, you know Loki is the next highest but it's there's a gap between Killmonger and Loki and I don't think it's that and it's not just because um, Michael B. Jordan is great in the role it's because the character is written so perfectly he's not up front and center in the beginning it takes him some time to establish that he is the real villain of this movie um, and when he does he basically has the same desires as Lupita Nyong'o and, and Chadwick Boseman. He wants the ultimately the same things. He wants he doesn't want there to be violence and cruelty in the world. He wants to help everyone, you know, help out the people who are in a bad position. Except he is just so foolhardy, and he doesn't have the calm and reserved head to understand that the decisions he's making have horrifying ramifications. He has the he has the courage and and the is able to assert himself in a way that T'Challa is not and that T'Challa needs to be able to do. You know, there's a reason, you know, Bozeman hesitates. You know, he we learn it very very early in the movie when um Denai Gurira says don't freeze and he's like I never freeze. And then he freezes because he doesn't have that he doesn't have that level of assertion that Killmonger has. He cannot put himself out there as easily. And Killmonger has absolutely no problem doing that. None whatsoever. Uh, and but the problem is his mind, you know, he comes from a situation that is far different from what T'Challa has grown up in. And so the two of them, just the these two characters playing against each other, off of each other, and and sort of bouncing back and forth between their ideologies that are pointing towards the same goal and coming at it from very very different directions, is is truly fascinating and and a beautifully beautifully written to to show us just how um, how easy it is for just tweaking one element of a character. And seeing how quickly it could be something different. I love uh, the ending, um, not the fight in and of itself. Uh, I think the fight does suffer a little bit from like CGI ness, but it has that same element that uh, Phantom Menace, the lightsaber duel with Darth Maul has. You know, there's that moment in Darth Maul where those force fields come up and separate everybody from each other, and you know, you get this brief moment of respite where Maul is stalking back and forth. Uh, Qui-Gon sits down to, you know, go within himself at peace. And then you've got Obi-Wan further, way in the back who, like, is just so far away and cannot catch up in time. In this movie, you have uh, that final fight where there are moments where T'Challa and Killmonger can't fight each other. There's something preventing them from doing that. And they have to kind of like take a step and and assess the situation. And, you know, they talk and they try to convince the other person that they're doing the right thing. And and I like that. I think that's a good device to use. And uh, most, a lot of movies don't don't use that very often. And I I was, well, I mean, for good reason. You don't want to use it too much. But I was glad to see it used here. I was, I was, I thought it was quite effective. So yeah, Black Panther my number one movie that I first saw in February. Loved it. Super excited for Infinity War. I think for me, it raises the stakes even higher. It raises the bar even higher. Um, And uh, I think that was a big problem with Age of Ultron. Uh, But we'll see. Maybe maybe Infinity War won't kind of crumble under that pressure. Because I think Ultron was good, but definitely... Definitely paled compared to the first Avengers, so hopefully we can see things move back on an upward swing. Uh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. So 
running through those ten again. Oh, Lucy, Speak, Our Curse, Elmer Gantry, Bad Day at Black Rock, The Magnificent Ambersons, The Last Command, The Cove, Ace in the Hole, and Black Panther. Black Panther's still out in theaters right now. Check it out. Um, yeah, that's it. I don't know. Uh, that's, uh, that's where we're at. That's today's episode. Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought that went pretty well. If you liked it, let me know. Uh, you can contact me through email, circleoffilm at gmail.com, or Twitter at circleoffilm, or on Letterboxd, uh, letterboxd.com slash stranger, S-T-R-A-N-G-A-H. Um, or if you want to check out the website, circleoffilm.com. Tons of information over there, as well as patreon.com slash circleoffilm if you would like to support me or the show itself. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And as always, have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be the same tonight. I know she'll never leave me, even as she fades from Wait a minute.